Uh, good morning. My name is David, and I'm part of the leadership team here. And I am privileged to speak from time to time, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, the past few Sundays, we've been speaking about encounters with God's goodness. And today, we're going to begin in a place where it seems that all goodness has been lost. And we're going to begin with a woman whom most people get wrong. That place, we'll see, is not what you think it is. That woman, too, is not, perhaps, who you think she is. Let's look closer. Begin with the place. It seems from the scripture that Rachel read for us that we begin in a graveyard. This is Mary at the tomb. But shortly before the scripture that we heard read, the author of this book, John, tells us that it is also a garden. John 19, verse 41. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. And in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. There was a garden. John is the only gospel writer of four to draw our attention to this fuller description. As attentive gospel readers then, we're invited to make an imaginative shift. Because you may have seen films or images of Jesus' execution. Golgotha, that barren rock they called the place of the skull. Jesus had been lifted up on two pieces of timber, dead wood. Finally, his body was placed in the cold stone of the tomb. But John observes... In the place he was crucified, there was a garden, flora, living plants surrounding him. Why would John call our attention to this fact? Quick adjustment here. Every garden has its own meaning, to be sure, as a living witness to the creator. But the gospel author, I think, has something more specific in mind because John has been following the pattern of Genesis ever since the first chapter. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. All things came into being through him. The light shines in the darkness. John is invoking Genesis throughout the gospel. All of that specifically is echoing Genesis chapter 1 the chapter that places humans in the wilderness of creation on the sixth day. But creation is not only depicted as a wilderness. It is also shown to be a garden to be tended. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And later we hear that that's Adam's commission to, to tend and keep the garden. That's the garden depicted in this painting. Uh, and Eden, of course, has been the subject of imaginative art and literature through the years. It was, we're told, a place of vitality, unlike any we've known. Fertile, teeming with life, permeated with the presence of God. But we cannot truly conceive of this garden. It only comes back to us in fragments, in myth. Because if you look closely at this painting, 
In the distance, you can see the human couple, the human couple that is also us, through whom we, through whom we came to know distortions of the truth, misrepresentation, false speech. Did God really say? Nor shall you touch it. You shall not surely die. And then, after deception, a bitter new dynamic of blame. The woman you gave me, she, the serpent deceived me. No one was responsible. Everyone was to blame. And confusion and distortion set in. And that's why we can't remember the garden clearly. And yet, of what we remember, the blame was not spread evenly. This reality was brought home to me when I was bringing my daughter to Sunday school at a lively new church a few years ago. In the hallway to the children's classroom, there was a mural of the entire, that seemed to span the entire biblical narrative. And I loved the artist's style. It was fresh and engaging. However, there was a problem. At the start of this mural stood Eve, hand outstretched with that fatal fruit, a knowing smirk on her face. Adam, in surprised innocence, reaches out to take it from her hand. And from then on, no other individual women are featured on this mural. It's all patriarchs and heroic men. Even Jesus' birth is represented by a manger all on its own, <laughs> from which a full-grown man springs. <laughs> so my daughter, who was two years old at the time, could only look up at a woman who deceives. And unsurprisingly, had she joined the adults in the service, she would not have heard a woman preach from the pulpit. But that mural is not the whole Bible. Throughout Scripture and throughout history, women have encountered the goodness of God at first hand, without a man to mediate. And they have become bearers of that truth in turn. And today we receive that good news in the Gospel of John. But to hear that news, it's important to see how John is setting up a second Genesis. John is setting up a second Genesis. I've already made reference to the echoes of Genesis chapter 1. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. So we have day 1 in chapter 1, light and darkness. Then we have day, um, shift ahead to day six. In Genesis, day six, the day humankind is created. In John, day six, the day that Jesus, image of the invisible God, meets his death. Day seven in Genesis, the day of God's rest. Day seven in John, a Sabbath, a fitful, grief-stricken Sabbath when Jesus lies in the tomb at rest, his body at rest. Here in John 20, it is the first day then of a new week. This is signaled in John 20 verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Recall Genesis 1. There was evening and there was morning the first day. So a new week begins, but what are we to expect from this new beginning? For we begin in darkness, staring into the nothingness of a grave. So, having seen a fuller account of our place, a grave, but a garden gravesite, let's meet the woman 
whom most people get wrong. The woman who's not who you think she is. Verses 11 to 12. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Mary had been there to complete the burial, a process that they'd had to suspend for the Sabbath. She had a unique duty of care to Jesus, fulfilling here what his family might have done. And she startled to realize there is no corpse. That shocking fact, combined with the trauma of the past days, would make it difficult to register the marvel at hand. As the scripture says, quote, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body had been lying. Two angels seated on a low stone slab, a living ark of the covenant. The void between their wings cues a memory of the God who permitted no representation. But Mary had known the word become flesh. He was the one she followed, and his body was gone. Verse 13, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, if anyone had warrant to explain the goodness of God to someone in grief, it was these angels. Angels know a lot. But angels know better than to confuse an explanation, especially a poorly timed one, with the truth. And in this moment of grief, anything less than the truth would have been too weak. Here and now, that truth could only take bodily form could only be personal knowledge. And for that, the angels had to give way to another. Verses 14 to 15. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. All of a sudden, Jesus is there, speaking to her. Why didn't she recognize him? Was it the confusion and disbelief many of us know when we grieve? Was it Jesus' changed appearance after the resurrection? You'll remember that people on Emmaus Road also didn't recognize him. A lot have speculated and I'm going to let you ask that question on your own time. <laughs> Although I will say that Adam was called the gardener in uh, Genesis 1. He was there to tend and keep the garden. So she may not be entirely wrong on this point. But I think the pressing question this morning is whether we can recognize Mary. Who is Mary Magdalene really? She is addressed twice in this story as woman which may cue you to the fact that the author has Genesis in mind as well. We'll return to that point. But part of the difficulty here is that she, likely more than any other Bible character, has been associated with many different personas. So in the Gospel accounts, she is associated with the unnamed woman who anoints Jesus for his burial. She is the other unnamed woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and hair 
the one who's said to love much because she has been forgiven much. She is Mary of Bethany because, same first name. She is the Mary from whom many demons have been cast out. So we have this composite Mary. And perhaps you share my initial confusion about that. If you weren't confused when you came in, I hope I've confused you sufficiently. <laughs> How did she come to contain multitudes? Well, one sermon in particular bears a lot of responsibility uh, for this fact. Late in the sixth century, a pope named Gregory preached that these distinct gospel episodes, these four different women, are all the same. He also presumed that because Mary Magdalene had been liberated from seven demons, as the text says, she had had the full spectrum of vices. Ooh. <laughs> he emphasized that as the unnamed anointer of Luke, she had, was reported to have been a great sinner. Now, why would he make these assumptions? I think there are a lot of reasons. I can't go into them all here, but I can talk with you after if you'd like to speculate. But one of the things Gregory's known, about, known for is his book, Pastoral Rule. It's a classic in terms of pastoral care. And in that book, he, he says, ministers want to be able to attend to the whole spectrum of human experience. And he'll regularly set out the two poles of human experience for a number of different uh, realities. He has an interest then in setting up Mary Magdalene as a pole apart from that other Mary, Blessed Virgin. And so in Christian art, you get this juxtaposition. You may be familiar with it on the Eisenheim altarpiece here. These are the two women closest to Jesus, the two at the foot of the cross. And you can see here Mary, Jesus' mother, dressed in white, dressed as a nun, uh, being consoled by John the Baptist there. And then you'll see Mary Magdalene dressed more for the streets. The message here is that however you have led your life until now, as a symbol of purity or a symbol of sin, you can come as close to Jesus as it's possible to be. Mary Magdalene has therefore become a symbol of hope as well as a figure of the soul in love. This is an enormously, the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. Enormously powerful legacy in art and in spiritual formation, and there's something to appreciate in this tradition but we also have to think critically about its effects. Because as heirs of the Reformation, we inherit a lively tradition of questioning popes. <laughs> Any Protestants in the room? Right there, one, two, good. Popes and other church leaders are accountable to the scriptures just as we are. And there's a problem with this characterization of Mary, I submit. Because Mary is then depicted as always penitent, always weeping. If you know Christian art, you'll know a, a number of images of Mary as a weeping woman, um, not only at the foot of the cross, but also off on her own, and so on. There's a kind of private penance and sorrow that she represents. Also great love for God, but nevertheless. And the name Magdalene lies behind the English term maudlin. You know the term maudlin? Here's the definition from the dictionary characterized by tearful sentimentality, mawkishly emotional, weakly sentimental, maudlin. As you can imagine, that doesn't help her credibility. 
you don't want to hear a maudlin preacher. Some of my early sermons were a little maudlin, but I think I've improved. I still need my wife to read them through for sentimentality. You, you can feed back to me how I'm doing today. So you can see the contrast here between Mary Magdalene uh, in the image and the dignified posture of John the Baptist, the one with the striking haircut. <laughs> Who comes across as the more reliable witness to Jesus? Now this characterization of her as maudlin would be bad enough if it was actually her sin that she was weeping over. Those who have converted to Christ have a before and after in our story. We don't want to be frozen in our before, unable to live into the freedom and joy of our after. And we need to be careful not to do this with others. So if it's true that Mary did have a sinful past, we don't want to keep her weeping over that. But it's likely that the sins attributed to Mary Magdalene are not even hers to begin with. Being afflicted by demons is not the same as exercising vices. I think Gregory was wrong. And a specifically sexualized past, which is often attributed to Mary Magdalene, does not, in my view, have a biblical basis. Mercifully, as we will soon see, Jesus knows Mary's proper name, and so following him can we. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. This is one of the most tender scenes in Christian writing. Remember Jesus' teaching in John 10. I know my sheep, and I call them by name. This is a singular call, not to the composite woman, not to the maudlin one, but the Mary whom Jesus knows, Mary Magdalene in the wholeness of her life with Jesus. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It actually means my teacher. There's the personal inflection on that. And it's spoken in the Aramaic of their villages, the Magdalene to the Nazarene. You likely know the difference between calling someone teacher and calling them my teacher. The difference between taking an online class, maybe a Zoom class from someone, and sharing life, walks, meals, shared ministry. Mary knew Jesus as the one who'd lived out the gospel alongside her from his early exorcisms to his mature teaching. This is her teacher, her Jesus. He's hers, but that's not to say they were married. That's a legend or a secret code some of you may have heard. And my problem with that idea is not that it's too imaginative a use of this text. It's that it's not imaginative enough. It's too predictable, too domestic. I think it's untrue on a lot of levels, but even if even those that want to entertain that. It's, it's a domestic idea. And what, what's happening in Jesus and Mary Magdalene's uh, relationship is much more political, as I'm going to show, and liberating. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Do not hold on to me. Our relationship will not be as it was. It's going to become new. This is a threshold where we have to rethink our understanding of time, history, the body. Jesus will be still present in his community, even as his community, but his presence will be marvelously different than anything we've seen. And who is the first to share this news? 
What we're about to hear is a commission that overturned expectations in Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, specifically conceptions of who could be trusted to give testimony. In a legal context, for instance, women were not trusted as men were to give testimony. But Jesus calls this woman, Mary Magdalene, as first witness to the resurrection. Verse 17, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus calls this woman, Mary Magdalene, as first witness to the resurrection. Now remember that Jesus' commission was given in a garden on the first day of the week. The place and time are crucial details. As I've been trying to say, this is a second Genesis event. In the first Genesis, Eve was taken in by a word of deceit, which she then conveyed to Adam, who was with her. And in the New Testament, we hear specific reference to a second Adam. Paul talks a lot about a second Adam. But we don't often hear about a second Eve or a new Eve. Well, here she is, Mary Magdalene. In John's second Genesis, Mary brings the word of truth to men. Not deceit, truth. Mary tells the men that they too can encounter the goodness of God in Christ even when they think all is lost. I first learned this truth from my former teacher, New Testament scholar Edith Humphrey. And let me convey her words. Quote, it is as though Mary in the garden is a new Eve, freed by the risen Jesus to speak a good word to her brothers. Her very action proclaims that by the resurrection, Jesus has undone the ancestral curse that was enacted at Eden. That curse that caused a kind of ongoing discomfort, even enmity, between man and woman. A new Eve in the garden, Mary Magdalene. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary speaks the first person apostolic formula, I have seen the Lord, which is also used by Paul. She is, as some Christians of the second century called her, apostle to the apostles. Now, when Jesus next appears to the disciples, he does not have to repeat or improve upon the word that she spoke. And that dignity and that authority that you can see in this image is, I think, undermined and depoliticized by the speculation over Mary Magdalene's past and emotional instability and so on. After all, who trusts a gospel, a model and witness? And indeed, in Luke's account, he points out that they don't believe her. As a result, Magdalene houses have often historically been places for so-called fallen women rather than, say, preachers' seminaries. That should change. Let's have a seminary named Magdalene. Because what we do know with the full clarity of Easter's dawn is that Mary Magdalene was Jesus' first messenger who encountered the goodness of God in the face of Christ. 
and who began a long line of witnesses, faithful women and men who have told us that we too can experience the Creator's goodness for ourselves. Take this truth to our city. If any woman is in Christ, new, new creation. If any man is in Christ, new creation. Amen.